welcome, 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 welcome. Oh, sorry, guys. Welcome to the Andy Social Podcast. My name is Andy Dowling, and this is episode 136. Wow. Who would have thought? Now, before we kick into this week's episode, do you have Spotify? If you do, you can search for the Andy Social Podcast playlist. That's right. The podcast itself isn't quite on Spotify yet. However, I do note that that is actually in the works, so hopefully we'll have some news soon. However, in the meantime, I have created a playlist that features music from all the musicians that have been on the podcast to date. So if you want to support some of these people further, get on over to Spotify and search for the Andy Social Podcast. Follow that playlist. I'll be continuously adding more music to that playlist as I get more musicians on the podcast in the weeks, months, and years to come. So go and check that out. And hopefully soon, the podcast itself will be on Spotify. So stay tuned. Watch this space. Now, speaking of musicians, musicy music stuff, I play bass in the Australian metal band Lord. Who would have thought? Surprise, surprise. So you can get on over to lord.net.au, check out our brand new website that, Tim, that Tim's put together. It's fantastic. It's got Spotify integrated links. It's got uh, video clips. It's got all of our bio and history and all this historical stuff. There's uh, links to our online store where you can buy our brand new hoodies, which are quite timely if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, um, and CDs and all sorts of merchandise. And uh, we've got a new album coming out soon. So uh, more news to come on that. But uh, go over to lord.net.au, check all of that out if you want to dabble and get a bit of a taste of what the band is all about. In addition to playing in a heavy metal band, I also host the Self Starter podcast, which is all about small business, self-employment, and freelancing. So if that's something of interest to you, you can go over to selfstarter.com.au, or you can search for Self Starter in whatever you're listening through right now. Hopefully, it's there. Um, for anybody that has been playing along, this week, uh, I've actually put out episode 18 because it's a fortnightly podcast, and it's a special episode all about side hustles. Well, one side hustle in particular. It's about Twitch and video streaming. So if you're interested in earning a little bit of extra coin on the side, go and check out episode 18 of the Self Starter Podcast, which is all about Twitch. And I'm hoping to do some more side hustle episodes in the future as well. So go over to selfstarter.com.au. You can check out the latest episode, episode 18. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for everybody that's been supporting that podcast so far. This week's shout out. Now, if you're new to the podcast, each and every week, I publicly thank somebody. I put it on public record. My thanks to somebody that supports me in a whole range of different ways. And it could be uh, via andysocial.net or on Selfstarter or Lord or whatever it is. Anything that comes back to me means a hell of a lot. And it could be in, demonstrated a whole range of different ways. It could be leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Facebook. It could be buying merchandise via andysocial.net or lord.net.au. It could be uh, shouting me a beer via paypal.me on my website. It could be a bit of social media love, you know, tagging, retweeting, love hearting, um, all that sort of stuff. It could be just recommending the podcast to friends and family. Uh, it could be messages of encouragement, guest recommendations as well. So anything and everything, small and big, it all adds up and it helps me continue to push all of this stuff forward. And uh, it just keeps me motivated and driven and gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling. So <laughs> thank you so much to everyone that continuously supports me. So this week's shout out is for Roz Regan. Now, Roz put up a while back a post on her Facebook po profile that was a bit of a call to action. It was this 
gushing post about how great this podcast is and uh, encourage people to listen to the Antisocial Podcast. So for anybody that's listening or has discovered this podcast via Roz, welcome and thank you so much. And a massive thank you to Roz as well. And Roz has also uh, sent through some messages to give me some suggestions for future episodes as well, some topics. And um, I'm intrigued and definitely will dig into some of that stuff further down the track as well. So I really appreciate your support, Roz, and the enthusiasm and just the positive vibes that you're, you're sending my way. So um, thank you, thank you, thank you. And please, when you hear this, send me a message and I will flick you out uh, some little goodies in the post as well, because we all like getting something in the post. Okay, this week's episode is with Simon Lewis, who is an international humanitarian lifeguard. Simon has been a lifeguard in Victoria for quite some time, and like many of us, a few years ago, he saw the really tragic story that hit world news about the young boy, Aylan Curdy, who had drowned and was found washed up on a beach in Turkey, and Aylan was trying to seek uh, asylum as a refugee with uh, with his family and uh, unfortunately lost his life. And like many of us, uh, you know, struck a chord and stirred up a lot of emotions, but the difference with Simon is that, well... He leveled up. He went next level. <laughs> he, he just invested his life into um, applying a lot of the skills that he had built um, over the years in surf lifesaving, raised a lot of money and awareness. And as it stands now, a few years later, he's done multiple trips to Europe and has literally worked on the waters in the Mediterranean saving people's lives. He's literally saving people's lives. Um, and I don't know the exact tally to date, but my understanding is that he has saved close to 2,000 refugees in the Mediterranean, people that are seeking asylum from varying parts of Africa and Syria. And uh, this is really dangerous um, waters. Um, you know, a lot of people lose their lives. And, uh, you know, Simon is doing his part and lending his expertise to a, a bigger problem that we have. And uh, this is a really interesting story. It um, is definitely a reality check for me because, you know, I live in a, a pretty comfy part of the world and have had a pretty comfy upbringing. So I have not had a, any experience with uh, any tragedy uh, that even comes close to what these people go through, this this level of adversity. And I discovered Lewis um, indirectly through the uh, ASRC, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. And I believe they might have um, retweeted something on uh, Twitter about Simon. And I thought, oh man, I've got to I've got to reach out to this guy and have a chat. He is incredibly interesting. And luckily Simon was keen to, to chat. But um, a couple of days before we did this interview, uh, Simon was participating in the ASRC's yearly tele telethon uh, fundraiser that was raising money for uh, the resource center. And uh, they were able to, in 24 hours, uh, raise about $816,000. And I think there were about $150,000 above their previous record. So an absolutely amazing effort. And if you want to learn more about the ASRC, you can go to asrc.org.au. But to make everything easy, I have put everything in the show notes over at andysocial.net, including links to everything about Simon and uh, all of his stories and uh, just anything that you want to learn uh, about uh, some of the refugee crisis crises that we're having all over the world, but um, there's even a lot of stuff close to home here in Australia as well. So enough of me. Um, as always, everything's in the show notes over at andysocial.net, so go and check that out. But for now, please enjoy this really, really great chat with Simon Lewis. First things first, congratulations on the other night, uh, hitting the uh, 800,000 mark for the 
uh, tele- telephone fundraiser for the uh, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. It was um, like Con and his team do a wonderful job there. And, um, you know, like we, when I got there, we were 600K and um, then we got to 800. So, like, it was truly an amazing experience. Well, I was, and I was just about to call you on the night and I sort of I thought, I'll go and have a quick sticky beak on your on your Twitter feed to see what you're up to or what you've been sort of yeah. tweeting about. And then I thought, oh, geez, you're in the middle of a telephone. And so I'm looking at yeah. it and I'm, and I'm reading up and I go, oh, okay, great. So I, I threw a few dollars into the mix and then I just started watching it over the last couple of hours and it just it just spiked right at the, right at the end. Everyone got involved and then Con was retweeting like crazy and everyone was jumping on the bandwagon. It was quite exciting just to see everyone sort of just coming together to try and meet that goal. It was really, really exciting. Um, yeah, it was one of those things that um, I um, like having been having been part of it last year and um, having seen the reaction and uh, having done the telethon and and having uh, kind of um, had that experience with seeing what the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre does, the amount of uh, goodwill and love that came from them, and when uh, Con and I. Uh, did a video that um, got uploaded. Um, I was able to give that human side of um, what it's like when I uh, rescue refugees because realistically I'm only like 10% of their whole journey. And um, But, you know, that 10% is either life or death. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty critical just to put it lightly. And one thing that you mentioned there, that human element is something that I think is missing in a lot of the a lot of the noise that's out there, and especially from me personally speaking, you you sometimes get sucked into to whatever's on TV or on the radio or on the newspaper, and there's a lot of sort of I guess there's a lot of political agenda behind a lot of stuff, and people get sucked into I guess stereotypes, and you know uh, it, sometimes it's a generational thing as well, where you know it's it's changed and there's difference, and we're talking about things that are disconnected from us, and we we lose that human touch, that human connection, and. And I think um, just looking at what you've been doing over the last several years and, and just having a bit of a, a dig into a lot of that, it, I think you're filling in a gap there which I think needs to be addressed. And, um, I mean, you're doing it practically by getting out there, but I think you're telling a lot of people about that. Well, the, the interesting thing about my story is, is that I never thought I would end up in humanitarian crisis as rescuing refugees. Like, I started as a, as a pool lifeguard um, training in a gym. And then that led me to going, oh, I'm a pool lifeguard. Why don't I be a beach lifeguard? And that beach lifeguard skills then learnt me to become a professional uh, lifesaver lifeguard. And then that took me around the world. And I saw that image of Alan Curdy and I said, well, I've got all these skills. And uh, all I did was literally apply my skills to a, another location. And it's the same thing across the whole bronze medallion in the surf lifesaving community. If you're a bronze medallion at uh, Sydney, you can be, you can come down to patrol in in Victoria because it's the same set of professional skills. Mm. And so when I saw that uh, image of uh, the drowned Syrian boy Alan Curdy, I went, "Well, why am I not there?" And um, basically, I I made it happen, and I said, "I'm going." And and I landed on the ground in Lesbos, Greece, and um, you know, it was a, a wonderful gift that I was able to go there, and the public of Australia supported me um, with my GoFundMe page after I got the front cover of. The Age newspaper and uh, a story in the Sydney Morning Herald as well, and that 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 was the catalyst that which like to kind of turned my life around. And I, I still remember on the second of January two thousand sixteen when the front cover went viral, and um, the twenty two thousand six hundred dollars in donations, and I just just the humanity and blown awayness of uh, what the general public 
despite our refugee policy, was able to do and contribute with me. And um, as we saw the other night with the 800k for uh, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, you know, just the public, despite any policy or despite any kind of uh, government uh, agenda, they always share humanity. And um, we always, you know, whether we're um, biased on one thing or biased on another, we all come together as Australians in times of need. And um, you see that across the region. You see it with tsunami relief. You see it with hurricane relief. But uh, for sometimes the, the word refugee is uh, a bit polarizing. Um, oh. However, that's you know that's just the circumstance at the moment. Uh, that's that's it. I mean the the word the word gets interpreted a whole range of different ways, and it doesn't help when it's it's publicised in particular lights. And in you know for the average person that's sitting at home on a couch and and just watching what's on TV and and seeing the way that it's portrayed, sometimes it can it can be skewed and and an opinion may be formed based off that, but it's not a true reflection and what a lot of the work that you've been doing and, and the way that you've been getting out there in the public eye a little bit and, and referencing Con earlier as well. I mean, Con stuff, that's a, that's, that's a whole different thing altogether, but he touches into this as, as well as a whole range of other human, humanitarian uh, aspects, but it, it links in that human connection. So suddenly it snaps people out of whatever autopilot sort of uh, desensitized well, opinions that they might have. Well, well, that's the thing, you know, like, I didn't realise that Con was a finalist for the Australian of the Year uh, Victorian Local Hero um, category, the same category that I was a finalist for. And um, we, we kind of looked at each other and went, oh, <laughs> we're on similar paths and we get nominated for similar things. But the whole reason why we do it has nothing to do with anything that we're, we're similarly connected with. And um, the reason is, is that... Um, you know, when we when we see a child that you know, like we're seeing now with the whole Trump uh, daughter with America, mm. is that uh, when you see a child and you see that uh, desperation, you know, you know through through the education and through what you're being brought up with that, you know, they are the last uh, link in the chain. They have no idea what they're going like, what their um, what their policy or reality of their parents is. They're just experiencing the world. And, you know, for me, for example, when I was in, off the coast of Lesbos, um, when we had a, a mother try to hand me her baby in the middle of the, uh, in the GNC, you know, we couldn't accept the baby because the boat was still moving. And under international law, that was a, um, if I'd rescued that baby, I'd taken it from its mother, I would have been charged for people smuggling because mm. the law is pretty clear. But when you're off the coast of Libya, the fact that they're in a, a rubber boat 50 kilometres out to sea you know, that is a standard search and rescue case where we can rescue all the babies and the children. And, and you know, they know no different because they're just living their life. And so when you when you go through all these uh, experiences that they've been through, then you kind of ask yourself, you know, like if you put yourselves in their shoes, what, what would you, your perception of the world be? What would your perception of Australia be? And, um, you know, we are so lucky that we are born and we live here. And um, our, our multiculturalism aspect of, Australia allows us to go and contribute in the world, whether you are a doctor uh, with MSF or you are a lifeguard with uh, SOS Mediterranean or a proactive open arms. You know, um, it's just a, a wonderful gift that our skills allow us to make a difference in the world. It's, I mean, I'll go off on one, one little quick tangent. I mean, just sort of thinking about myself personally and my upbringing. I mean, I, I lived, you know, three quarters of my life in Queensland and pretty pretty sheltered and pretty uh, comfortable 
you know, upbringing and, and had pretty much everything at my fingertips, great family, um, nothing to complain about. And um, I moved to Sydney, you know, 15 odd years ago and, you know, a, a far more uh, multicultural and then meeting a lot of people from different backgrounds and people that, um, you know, are first generation here and, and coming from various parts of the world that have just had a completely different experience to what I've had, you know, growing up. And, and through that, you start to realize and appreciate what you do have. But when you, when you don't have those experiences and you don't get to connect with people, you don't, you don't appreciate what you do have. And you tend to form really odd opinions and perspectives of, uh, of of the world and and other people and you, you, there's a real sort of divide between um you know you and who and where you are in the world versus everybody else but um that certainly helped me personally so when a lot of the things that you speak about is it's it it strikes a chord with me because i've sort of had a bit of that sort of development over the years and i think the multicultural mm. aspect of our country has uh, provided so many benefits i mean just on that alone let alone everything else well the thing is is that you know, when we grow up in our in our schooling, you know, we learn about the first fleet. We learn about uh, Port Phillip, uh, Captain Phillip, or whoever, you know, um, Captain Cook, mm. etc. And we learn about, you know, how these people came on a boat and they settled, and the Aboriginals and and all the kind of the the, the history that happened there. And yet, you know, if it was a modern day take on it, you know, could you imagine them coming in a and an oil tanker rocking up to Sydney Harbour, jumping off and then starting a new life. Mm, <laughs> it's, mm. And yet that is our history. That's kind of, you know, we had, we came by a boat and we rocked up and we, once we reached land, we settled and we made a life for ourselves. And yet, you know, this whole boat people uh, kind of discourse around, you know, oh, you can't bring them here, you know, they can't, and they're doing exactly the same thing, you know, a hundred something years later it's just a bit contradictory. Um, but, you know, like I understand our border security, I understand um, international law and I understand um, why why our government does what it does and I've, I've been privileged to, uh, to know a bit more information behind the scenes. But um, it's one of those things that, you know, multiculturalism, refugees, uh, asylum seekers, you know, whatever label you want to call these people, you know, when you're in Melbourne, you know, you go to the, the uh, South Melbourne markets and you want a dim sim. You know, you, <laughs> mm. you go to, to Footscray and you want a Footscray roll, uh, roll. You know, you go to uh, Ligon Street and you want a Sivlaki. You know, and, and that's the thing that, that, you know, with it being Refugee Week this week, it's that that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that these people, even though they've been through a hard journey, even though that they've gone through different... Uh, experiences they value add and and if they don't value add they show you what you should be like then and um very rarely do you get someone who's risked their life in the sea or risked their life to go to a freedom that would absolutely not enjoy every single day that they have freedom there's a there's a, a level of um I don't know, just appreciation for life that um, a lot of people probably don't get the, the chance to experience. And, you know, I mean, for somebody that's been in those life or death situations or um, fleeing an area where, you know, they've got that choice. And uh, you've I've certainly seen you mention this in a, a number of different things for people to put themselves in such a, 
a dangerous situation that um, you know throws the odds potentially or more than likely against them um, goes to show where they're coming from and, and the circumstances that they're fleeing from. So for them to be able to seek you know, asylum and seek, you know, a, a new country and somewhere that's, you know, completely free in comparison to where they've been from, you know, the energy that comes from people like that, that have been through such adversity is incredible. And you, there's a lot to learn from, from people like that. Well, well, it's a baptism of fire. You know, they've had to really test their resilience. They've had to really be mentally strong. Like you, you can't imagine just walking out the door, just going, oh, just go, get some milk, walking out the door and then you look back and then your house is bombed mm. and all you have is just literally your wallet, your phone, your set of keys and nothing else exists. And what do you do? <laughs> and the bombs are still coming. And, and you know, would you, would you run to safety or, or would you just go back into the bombs or would you go back into the torture or would you pay, you know, your way out of that situation? And the thing is, is that human beings in general, you know, we all have that flight or fight mechanism. And, and it's, you know, we've got lots of history and lots of uh, research papers on it and the superhuman strengths that you, you gain when, you, when you're flighting or fighting. And, um, you know, I've seen mothers do amazing things for their children because they want their children to have a better life. Because they know that, you know, this, this life that they're living right now is only temporary. And I, I've seen these aspects of, of humanity in, in people who have nothing. And, you know, even if they had one bread, one bread slice, they would share it four ways, mm. even though they're all hungry and they haven't eaten for three days. But that's the thing, you know, we, we then have people living and experiencing that. And on the other aspect of it, we have people who are, you know, worth millions of dollars drinking Dom Perignon. <laughs> and, but that's, that's, that's the uniqueness of our planet. And, um, you know, when you go to a, a humanitarian crisis, when you're actually on the ground and as, you, as an aid worker or, or uh, you know, as a, a lifeguard or head of mission in my case, um, you know, when I'm there, you, every morning you wake up, you wake up with purpose. You know, you know, as an aid worker, why you're contributing to this crisis. You know why you're there. And, the sad reality is, is that it's a sheer numbers game. There's, you know, refugees or migration routes are like water trickling down a mountain. It's always going to find a way mm. to the bottom. It's coming. It's going down the mountain. But when you're on that crisis, you know, when you're waking up with purpose, you're, you're making the most of your day and you're, you're trying to help people. And, you know, when they say thank you or when you actually give them assistance, you know, half the time they can't really verbalize thank you because they're too distraught or they're too at wit's end you know they're too traumatized so they'll look and they'll stare you down with your the eyes and they'll pierce your eyes and you both will lock eyes and and you nod they nod and you both verbally uh, like uh, telepathically know exactly what you're saying mm. even though it's not verbally and uh that moment is just uh it, you cannot describe how soul enriching that it is that you've actually contributed to that person. And for us as, as a lifesaver, you know, when we save a life, you know, we still get that reward. But, um, but you know, it's just that uh, that's our job, you know, and when we're just doing our job, we don't really um, over overthink it too much because we know that there's a bigger journey ahead. 
Well, I was gonna I was gonna ask you that at one point as well about you know even going right back to to day dot so to speak with you know uh, being a a lifeguard in a, in a pool versus going you know at the local beaches and then and then going and doing work overseas in in a more extreme set of circumstances how you manage a lot of this these situations and scenarios where I guess you know I'm just I don't know if I'm just like the the average Joe would probably look at it and go oh geez this is like it's so incredibly overwhelming and stressful and something that would take a certain type of person to be able to handle it and I think <clears throat> I'm just having a guess here but the the scenario that you just mentioned about having that connection with people and looking each other in in your eyes and sort of getting that sort of electricity that energy and um, feeling that yeah. connection with people would be something that sort of mitigates and helps you control everything else that you're dealing with. Well, the reality is is that um, on any beach in Australia, the red and yellow flags are up. They put the flags up to be the safest part of the beach. And the thing is, is that if someone was drowning in, in those yellow flags or near the yellow flags for, or anywhere on the beach, when the lifesaver who is professionally trained enters the water or in all he does in his mind is he just has to go as hard and fast to rescue the victim Mm. so that's all he has to do hard and fast rescue the victim because the reality is the difference between the victim and the lifesaver is attitude Mm. when i enter the water i know that i have a team behind me that's going to come get me not the like not the uh the gun-ho mentality we we what we do, we do we do what's called uh, pause plan and uh, rescue. So we pause we pause we look at what we're going to do. We we kind of map out what we're going to do in our heads and we execute it and we go and run in the water or we pull the victim um, onto our boat, etc. But the thing is, is that 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 format of entering the water, that that format of putting ourselves into danger, is knowing that we have a team behind us, mm. and that team mentality is what makes us. Uh, the rescuer and um, you know when you when people are in distress and they're drowning they're, they're you know they've, they've got tunnel vision because it's all about trying to prevent saving their life you know they're, they're too focused on that than actually you know staying calm um, etc when people are in rips for example mm. um, but it's that team mentality and you know I'm no different to any other professional lifeguard in the world the only difference is, is that I've applied my skills into humanitarian crises. And uh, the attitude that I have is that I, I've, you know, from when I was a pool lifeguard, I had a lot of rescues. I, I uh, helped drown kids. I had skydivers fall out of the sky and, um, you know, I conducted some major rescues. And I, I learned that when it's chaos and crazy, I'm actually very calm. And uh, it's actually I'm, I can con- think very fast and I can uh, decide on outcomes. So that, that ability to be calm in crisis allowed me to end up going to the uh, top position of head of mission. Mm. So I was the first Australian head of mission on the central migration route off the coast of Libya, which is the deadliest migration route in the world. So as a lifesaver, I've been the boss of a rescue ship um, in, in a humanitarian crisis. So I can't really, career-wise, I can't really get any bigger than that that was like you know and and to to give you an idea of the complexity i was an australian leading a german ship (laughs) with a spanish rescue crew off the coast of libya controlled by the italians rescuing african refugees 
who speak French. <laughs> so oh, what, a, what a melting pot. <laughs> you're like, you can imagine what, what that was like. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I've gone through um, different NGOs. You know, I was with the International Lifesaving Association, uh, which is based out of Huntington Beach in California, um, and I was on the ground with Lesvos. So I was an American organization on the ground to help Greek lifeguards on a Greek island to get people from Syria mm. coming via Turkey. Um, and some of the other humanitarian work was I, I went to Mexico and trained a set of lifeguards there as well with the Americans. So, you know, it, it's this – you've got skills, you've got the ability, you know, everyone can absolutely do this. And, you know, I was on Centrelink. I was poor. You know, I had no money when I, you know, I'd, I'd lost the, I'd kind of moved, I got injured, I kind of uh, got back on uh, kind of getting fit and then I got myself fit and then I got a job and then I was being a lifeguard and I was, you know, earning minimal money and as lifeguards, you know, we say, you know, poor in cash but rich in life because mm. <laughs> <laughs> we have to because we'd like to be rich in cash. But, yeah. no, you know, but the thing is, is that when um, when you go to these places or when you when you put yourself in the water, you know, it's a very controlled um, kind of set of uh, circumstances. You know, even if it goes wrong, you, you know, the, the, the phrase is that so others may live. And the American Coast Guard have that all on their, um, all on their branding, so others may live. And that's it because ultimately, you know, you've got an ability to help someone and there's no excuse not to. A couple of, jeez, oh, so many things to, to ask you off, off that, but the, one of the things that you mentioned earlier and one of your traits that's helped you succeed and, and, and have the impact that you've had with so many different people is that calm approach in critical situations. Do you think that's a DNA thing with you or is that something that's developed over the years as you've had more scenarios and experience? Is it something like, it, does that come from anywhere in your past? Is it, is it a, is a parent thing well, or an upbringing or what? what yeah. What's the origins? Well, of it? Well, my mother's a nurse, um, oh, so yeah. she's an R- RN, and uh, I, I know I get some humanity from her. Mm. And she's a really beautiful lady who's helped uh, lots of people, and she manages six wards, and, uh, you know, she helps people uh, in aged care, you know, and she gives dignity and death. So a uh, saying that we have is, you know, humanity and life and digni- dignity and death. And um, it's that kind of thing. I, I don't – it's not a DNA thing. It's just a – uh, resilience builds up over time. It's like you're running a marathon. You know, you do 10, you start with, you know, 100 meters, then you get, you know, 10 Ks, 20 Ks, and you build up, and then eventually, you know, you finish the marathon. But it's that building up. You know, I've had experiences over the course of uh, my, my life that have uh, taught me who I am. And, and once you, you kind of know yourself or you, you know some of what you want to be, that gives you direction to go forward. You know, I started off in marketing and media and I did, well, I did a diploma of justice first because I thought I was going to be a police officer. Mm. And then I went and did a, a bachelor of arts, media marketing and, and culture. And then I ended up doing marketing and culture. And then I uh, had a car crash and then I changed careers and I was a, a, an endurance athlete for a while running marathons and Ironmans. And, and uh, then I was a lifeguard. And now I'm, uh, you know, a head of mission in an aid worker in humanitarian crises. <laughs> and um, whatever the next step is, I, I, I have no idea. But the thing is, is that you just kind of 
you kind of do it each day as it comes because the big picture is irrelevant. It's more that you just start learning. You just start um, engaging. And I, I honestly did a diploma of justice because it felt like in the Sunday paper, they have like the TAFE catalogs that fall out. And I literally just flicked through the TAFE catalog and was like, what am I going to do after school? And anyway, I flicked through it and I, I just pointed to a page and I looked at it and it was like justice uh, of the peace, justice administration, um, uh, something else starting with J. And I went, oh, justice administration. And I looked at it and I went, oh, I could do that. And I did it. <laughs> like, and I can tell you now, it was, I needed, to, like the universe had a bigger picture for me. And I had to trust my gut about the universe providing a bigger picture for me because that justice, a diploma of justice, law, uh, taught me how to read the law, taught me what all the big words were, taught me how to get out of uh, dodgy parking fines, <laughs> taught me how to read international law, taught me how to read maritime law, and taught me uh, basically what um, – I need to do as, as as a human on the ground in a humanitarian crisis not to get myself arrested. So then I did a diploma, I did a, a, bachelor, of Art, a bachelor of Arts in Marketing and Culture and Media. And so when I went to Lesbos and uh, I had the mother that tried me, hand, hand me the baby, um, basically that story went viral. Mm. And so I was the front cover of CNN Worldwide, I was the BBC, ABC, NBC, uh, you know, 100,000 Google results. Uh, I had my phone in meltdown. Um, you know, I had, you know, 4,000 emails from media. I had, you know, it, you just Google it. It comes up mm. everywhere. And, I, like, I realized from that stage I never got my life back. But <laughs> the thing was is that when the media came for me, I had my Diploma of Justice that I learnt all the legal legalities of what the area of operation I need to be as. I then had a, a media degree that I knew how to speak to the media and I knew what, when the media was coming for me, exactly what I'm there for and, and what, I, what my message was. And my message, my message has always been, it's not the Simon Lewis story, it's their story told by Simon Lewis. I'm the narrator of their story because I'm not a refugee. I'm not the one trying to sort my life out and, and go to freedom. I haven't been raped, abused and tortured. Mm. I've, you know, I've had a privileged life in Australia um, that has been a wonderful gift that I somehow, we all got so lucky. Like to be born in Australia, to be, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed and, and, you know, tall and somewhat thin, you know, and the ability to use both legs, my mind and my arms, uh, you know, I, I, you just—it's just a wonderful, lucky gift. And the only thing that's going to ruin that is probably myself. Mm. You know, being a, a male, um, going out and uh, you know, being a boy. <laughs> but um, it, I mean, yeah, there's, you, one, there's one big thing that I—I I mean, I get out of a lot of that, and it's a common thing that I, when I'm talking to friends, and um, you know, and a lot of my backgrounds in in music, so it's a very—I mean. You know the the action, the operation of what we do is very different as far as the impact. It's it's on a different level, but it's the you know we do it for for the love of it. But we often look at lofty goals and dreams of where we would like to be, or we see contemporaries or someone succeeding, and we think there's just no way of getting there. Or how the hell could you ever get to that level of technical skill or expertise? Okay. Um, 
or just something completely left field that you see in in your in your life walking along and you sort of think well there's no way of of that's that's completely out of my realm it's not in my in my inner circle it's not in my path or stereotypical uh, path and from what you just explained earlier about the the gradual sort of steps along the way of just each little thing and even though it might be sending you off on a different tangent or a different direction and then you pivot pivot and you change and you have a new chapter in your life it all adds up and it all becomes value and well, it can be applied later on well what we we call it a body a body of knowledge mm. so you, you build up this body of knowledge that you know I I don't think anyone really remembers their first semester of uni. <laughs> I don't think I don't think anyone has retained any information about what they 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 all the papers they'd they'd uh, you know spent hours upon hours writing. <laughs> you know, I, if if at the end of that three year degree, if you remember that paper, I, I'll be surprised. Yeah. But surprisingly, when you actually are in in uh, a crisis or when you are drawing information from the back of your brain you're like oh actually i've got a bit of yeah you know i i know that (laughs) and so that was the most interesting thing is that when i was actually on the ground on lesbos i was like oh i can actually read this i understand what uh the legal uh framework is i understand what oh i actually know and then i had to teach others who had no idea because they started using, you know, big words like, you know, jurisprudence and, and, uh, all these are like, I can't remember any legal words right now, but, <laughs> but there are lots of le- technical legal words. And, and basically it was bas- trying to make it so complicated when actually if you had a bit of knowledge, it'd be very simple. And the, and the simple thing was is that you cannot rescue any boat until that boat has stopped and it is taking on water and sinking. If the engine's running, that boat is deemed to be still in operation. Therefore, if you rescue someone, you're dragging that person across an international border and you can be uh, up for prosecution. And so what we did see eventually was these uh, three lifeguards from Promade, a Spanish NGO, that helped a boat across the uh, GNC um, that had uh, its motor and in, it was a very complex mess. But then the Greek authorities... Uh, arrested these lifeguards and said they were people smuggling when they weren't mm. but they ended up getting acquitted after you know three years of limbo and um this uh this uh legal case was about um they just how they interpreted the law and you know we when we go to humanitarian crises you know it, it's that kind of thing of what what is bringing you there and um, for me, what actually brought me there was was that image and, that, and me simply saying I can help just a human. I I had some set, set of skills that when I looked at that image, I did some CSI uh, um, on his uh, kind of image. I could work out how the tide was, what the weight of his skull would have been, how his body ended up the way it was. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I looked at that and I, I realized how bad and the currents were. And actually, when I went to and I was in the middle and I saw where the uh, uh, Alan Curdy drowned, I realised how violent and how um, kind of uh, <laughs> well, not very nice it would have been. Mm, absolutely. And, and but his mother and his brother died as well. But no, not many people know that because they just focus on that focus image, on the of, image. The, of the kid washed in the beach. And I mean this, and then the big thing with this and the connection to it all is, I mean that's that's one 
story in you know multiple stories that are out there that are continuously happening and i think that's that's the challenge that that's out there is that you know your your average person that's living in a, in a degree of comfort at home and and trying to understand and connect is that they see one thing and it's tragic and and yes that might stir stir some emotions and it will get some people into action but others they sort of they forget about it when the next story comes up and forgetting that this is just an ongoing thing that continues to happen well i think it was for me that i was able to just instantly know that I had something to contribute. And like like many people, I, I have in a Facebook on my phone, I have, you know, Instagram, I have Twitter, I have all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I like the um the other day when we raised all that money for uh, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, you know, that's yesterday's news. <laughs> like, you know, we've already we're already drowned it out by Trump now. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, but but the reality is is that $800,000 for the Asylum Seeker Resource Center. You know, Con will put that into programs that are going to have a massive difference for, you know, years. Mm. But it's, you know, yesterday's news. And uh, the thing was that absolutely made me act was I looked, I just looked and I said, I, I knew. And I said, well, why am I not? And I, you know, I had, when I give keynote speeches, you know, I talk about, how I had no real money, I had an okay job, I had um, no real idea what refugees or the Syrian refugee crisis was apart from them getting bombed. Um, I had no idea of how I'm going to go to Lesbos or who am I going to go with to Lesbos with. I just said, I'm going. And it was just was that fundamental change in my brain that that made me kind of put it together. And you'd be surprised at who in your who in your social network, who in your friendship group, kind of who's there for you. And um and, and many years ago when I had a car crash, I was in hospital for a couple of weeks and I got to learn who my true friends were and who I truly was as a person. And boy oh boy who I was as a person and who my true friends were, were very vastly different <laughs> when I left hospital. Mm. And, uh, you know, people who I'd known and I'd partied and gone out on, uh, you know, Friday nights and Saturday nights, you know, didn't come and see me in hospital. And yet people and business people came and saw me who were from Sydney. Mm. You know, so it was that uh, I had that moment of knowing myself and knowing who my truth, who my network around me was. And then, you know, I weeded out all the negative people. And that, that clearing out of all the negative people around me allowed me to get some clarity. And so when I came to this, I'm going to Lesbos, um, you know, there's resistance. You know, there was uh, uh, kind of like, oh, why are you going to help terrorists? You know, there was all this kind of stuff. And I just cleared those people out. And I, I put the blinkers on. You know, it's like a racehorse, you know. Racehorse puts the blinkers on so it can just see the finish line. Mm. And um, I put the blinkers on and I got it done. And when you, when you get on that wave, when you ride that kind of momentum with a, you know, you've got a goal and you're, and you're pushing and you're going to achieve it, you know, you're spending hours trying to get there. And when you get there, the people who have supported you, you know, it's the biggest reward to actually see someone achieving a goal and absolutely making a difference. 
And, um, you know, even though they didn't have the skills to come with me, they saw me on the ground and that was the biggest reward. And, you know, when we had the GoFundMe campaign and we got, you know, $22,000, the thing was is that, that I had no idea who these people were. I knew a couple of people, but I had no idea. It was just the general public of Australia and they and, – and from other countries as well, but mainly the general public of Australia. And they, you know, the Greek community rallied around – the uh, Lesbos community rallied around and they helped me get on the ground. And then I, when I was on the ground, I had $22,000 to go, what am I going to do? And I was like, oh, I'll buy medical equipment. And then there's a shipping container full of medical equipment. So I'm like, oh, how am I going to spend this money? I, I have to spend this money. It's their money. What am I going to do? How is Australia through me going to make a difference for refugees and then i then i started looking and i and the thing was that when i paused and i had a good look at what was actually happening i realized that it was taking us about 10 minutes from the time we saw a refugee boat to to getting in the uh the inflatable boats and rushing out to them to be on the scene to make a medical assessment so we've got radios where um, when we get to a, a boat that's doing the crossing between uh, Turkey and Lesbos, it's about two hours for them, an hour to get to the border, then an hour to go to the shore, to Lesbos. You know, and they're going about, you know, plodding along, you know, a couple of k's an hour. And um, and the boats are overladen. It's got 80 people on bo- a boat that's built for 30. Mm. Um, and so I started looking at that and I, sa- and I started going, well, why are we not, getting on the scene fast or if the boat starts sinking how do we not get there and then i thought in the back of my head oh in western australia they have a west farmers rapid response team which is has jet skis and has a, like a, a kind of a, a, can rescue them very fast and so then i looked at it and then i said to the greek lifeguards who were there with lifeguard hellas i said to them why don't we set up a rapid response team and we got one of their jet skis fixed. We bought another jet ski. We got it uh, taken. We got it uh, shipped in from Athens, and we set up a rapid response team. So that time of launching from ten minutes got down to three. Wow! Now it takes thirty seconds to drown mm. in a pool. In the Aegean Sea, you're looking around eighteen seconds. So you so you're around eighteen seconds. Once you start once you start going, you're going. And these people. They hadn't really seen water. They hadn't, you know, like it, they're landlocked. And, uh, you know, they hadn't been really on a boat, but, you know, they don't know if they're wearing real life jackets or fake life jackets that the smugglers have uh, made them buy because it's all, you know, they've all paid their way or mm. they're, for, you know, they're getting trafficked. So, you know, when we reduced that time and we set up this rapid response team, um, that was a game changer. And that game changer... You know, I end up, you know, I end up getting nominated for many awards for it. But that's not why I did it. But the game changer was that we reduced that launch time to be on scene to make assessments. So when we make an assessment, we're like, um, you know, there's 30 women and children. We need more women doctors to be on the beach when we're there. We need, uh, we've got a critically ill person. We need, you know, a more of an advanced medical crew. Or everyone's fine, um, you know. We need to organise the, the buses to come to take them to the refugee camp. Um, so, you know, we're doing that pre, 
before they actually land on the beach on Lesbos, we're doing that pre-assessment. And if anyone drowns, we're rapidly um, saving their life. So um, it, it was a game changer. But that was what, through the journey I had to go through, that the public, when they gave me that money, allowed um, us to make this this difference. And that jets like that jet ski team, you know, it, it was kind of a bit of a uh, an fu to uh, any refugee policy because it was going out rescuing refugees. And it was an Australian-funded um, group that went out and uh, and went and saved lives, even though that uh, most people that were using it were Greek or the uh, international lifeguards. It was still our contribution to one of the biggest humanitarian crises of our generation. It's a big statement to make, isn't it? It's It's amazing that, you know... <laughs> when I've lived these things and then people tell me about the stuff that I've done and the labels that come with it, it's like, I, I just look at it and I go, well, I, I, I help people, you know, I, you know, when it's like, you know, you were on the deadliest migration route in the world, you know, I know I've seen, you know, there are people that die, you know, there's been many deaths, you know, and, uh, you know, it's like all these, these labels and all these, um, this branding, you know, it contextualizes um, what it actually is. You know, I've seen women and children be crammed like sardines on a boat, sitting off the middle of nowhere, just hoping for freedom. And, and you know, like to even have the balls to get on a boat and pretend to go to New Zealand, <laughs> yeah. like, no way, <laughs> like, like, yeah. you, you, you just cannot imagine that what the mental state of these people are, the angry, like the, the anguish and the, the resilience and the fear. Now, you know, like I, I, I've, you know, I've, I've every now and then, you know, a smell, I'll get up, you know, I'll smell something that's similar to the smells that I've smelt over there. Um, and you know, like you, when you witness, um, uh, people, um, who are distraught, you know, fear has a certain smell. Mm. Like you can, like, you, you know, when people are fearful, like genuinely fearful, it's this electricity, it's this, this smell, this, this, um, undescribable kind of, um, event that these people have around them. Mm. And, um, yeah, like that, you know, when you smell this, this fear, then you smell this, then, then when they, are free when, when we rescue them or when we, um, we, we let them know that their life is now changed. You just see it fade away. And, um, and their, their hyper vigilance turns into calm. And, uh, it, it's just a really, really, um, defining moment that you, you've just seen that someone's life has forever changed. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the, I mean, I went and did a, a, a little bit of prodding around and had a look at some of the articles that you've been featured in over the last few years. And it talks a lot about, you know, the number of people that you've helped save. And there's some incredible numbers of, of people that you've had a, you know, a direct impact in assisting to make sure that they, they survive. But I mean, a lot of the stuff that probably doesn't get mentioned is the tragedies as well along the way. And I mean, that's, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about before about, you know, you having some personal resilience to be able to manage that. But I'm assuming that those moments where there's that, that relief comes over somebody where they, they realize that they're, they're safe and they're out of that immediate danger um, helps you process some of those 
those other tragedies that you've you've unfortunately got to deal with as well as just being part of part of the the task at hand well the psychological aspects of it is is that you know you you only can help so many people mm. and it's a numbers game you know on one of my last missions uh you know we we were uh, in a storm we had 5 meter waves we were making a beeline to Zazas, uh, Tunisia for safe harbor because our ship you know is put it's, we're, we're on the limit of what we can really do and so we needed to go to safe harbor and as we're going to safe harbor we get a phone call from the Italian Coast Guard to say there's a boat, a refugee boat in distress. And as head of mission, it's my job to decide exactly what we're going to do. And uh, I have the final say. The captain and I have a discussion, and ultimately I'm responsible for the lives of my crew, my ship. And the sad reality is, is that it's priority number one is me, priority number two is my boat, and priority number three is the victim. If I, if I put myself out, I put my boat out, no one gets rescued. And um, it's just the numbers game. And, and sadly, these people, you know, they were uh, off the coast of Libya in, in five to seven metre waves. And uh, I had to say, no, we cannot rescue them. And uh, that's it. It's too bad, so sad. Um, you know, they, they ended up uh, getting rescued by a, a Navy ship out of the middle of nowhere that was on no one's radar some kind of stealth ship somewhere that magically popped up and rescued them, which was a sheer miracle. But, you know, I had to, do, I had to make that decision. One is, of the hardest this, yeah. I was just going to say, like, it's is that come, like, with a, I'm just trying to think of a way to sort of visually describe this, is it, but is it like sort of almost like a, a, a mechanical robotic switching of the brain where you have to turn into this very black and white approach about, you know, as you mentioned before, you, you've got priorities, you've got to look after yourself, your your vessel, your crew, your equipment, and and the the people at hand, which is the whole reason you're there, has to sit back in that priority list because you have to get Look, everything else right. So, is it a black and white approach in those situ- situations? It's crystal clear. Hmm. It, it's you know, for us as lifesavers, for us as lifeguards, for us as humanitarian workers, we know what we're putting ourselves into. Hmm. We know the risks. We know that we can't help everyone. We know that we're educated people. We know that this is the reality of the situation. This is the reality of the crisis. But when you're confronted with it and you're saying no, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like a, you know, ripping off the Band-Aid. It, you know, it stings. It does sting a little bit. And, you know, uh, it, it does break your heart. You know, you, you, you then start – it's like a suicide, you know. Mm. You try to find that, find that, you know, even if you read the suicide note, you're still asking why. Why did they actually, you know, you, you never get that, you're never going to get that answer to why, you know, because it's absolute. And um, that's the thing, you know, when you're having to make these decisions, it is black and white because you do have a matrix of, you do have a risk assessment. Mm. You do have a matrix of, of, you know, what we're going to do. Should I endanger my life of my crew? And the reality is, is it's just a numbers game. And, uh, the, you don't know these people personally. You know, you never really know the people you rescue personally. Um, but, you know, the odds are, the odds are very, very high that you'd never know the person. Mm. But that's that kind of thing. It's, 
it's just a sheer uh, kind of matrix that you go through. And it's you have to be that machine in a way because, you know, you people die one day and you rescue a thousand people the next. It, it's just what a crisis is about and that's why it's a crisis. And I guess, I guess that's a professional edge in your expertise over the years of, of building up that experience of going through so many different scenarios to get you in well, the situation that you're in now. Well, there's critical incident stress across all emergency services. Mm. You know, it's, 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 it's there, you know, even Ambulance Victoria, you know, there's a high suicide rate. There's, you know, a lot of critical incident stress and there's a lot of debriefing and there's a lot of uh, management of you know, PTSD and trauma and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, when you work in this space, you're going to see abnormal, you know, our normal is abnormal, mm. but that's the reason why we do it because it's abnormal and we have the ability to be normal in abnormal. And, um, you know, uh, it's a very, very simple um, set of circumstances that you make these assessments on because, it's all about numbers. It's all about helping the most you can. And then if it all goes wrong, giving dignity, you know, humanity and life and dignity and death. And, you know, the sad thing is, is that, you know, a, a body is a body. You know, we all bleed the same blood. We all, no matter when you're dead, you know, you don't speak. You, you don't have any religious beliefs. You're simply a body. And, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, if you're Christian, if you're a Jew or whatever you are, when you're, when you're dead, you know, and you're dead in a crisis, you know, most of the time the aid workers will give you dignity. And, um, and that's simply it. You know, it's part of the, part of the, the, the game that you play with, uh, the, you know, trying to help one hand on this side, trying to be the other person on that side. But, um, it's just a difficult um, environment, but that's the environment that, you know, you're there to help. And um, I'll give you an example. You know, it's when people look at their own death, you know, people, you know, forget that we're all dying. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, every breath you take, you know, you every birthday, you're, you're slowly getting towards your death. But, you know, are you making the most of each day, et cetera? But the thing is, is that, you know, people don't actually imagine their death or people don't actually, um, you know, write out what they want at a young age. You know, I, I'm lucky that I had to write out, you know, in the event of my death, what do I want with my body? Mm. You know, if I'm, if, I'm in, if, if I'm in Libya or if I'm in London, you know, it's like $30,000 to repatriate my body. Mm. Wow. <laughs> do, do, do I really want my family to pay that? Yeah. You know? You, or you die in Phuket or you die in there, you know, it's very expensive to get your body back to Australia. But it's like, what do I really want? You know, do I want my family to be happy or, or do I um, want to come back home? And it's, you know, when you look at your own death, you really kind of learn more about yourself because, you know, I know, I know the funeral songs that I want. You know, I, I, you know, I want Nick Cave, uh, Into My Arms and Nick Cave, The Ship Song. Mm. You know, I like, I like those songs, you know. Um, as a musician, you you'd probably know those very yeah. well. <laughs> and I'd, I'd love Nick Cave to play it, but uh, I don't see that <laughs> happening, <laughs> you know. And, uh, but it's that kind of thing. It's like when you actually think about your own death and when you think about your own life, you know, 
your, your funeral is actually for the living to grieve over you yeah. because you're dead. Mm-hmm. So, um, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. But, you know, when these refugees are going off Libya, for example, and, and uh, it all goes sadly wrong, you know, they, they drowned. And, and sadly, the Mediterranean Sea and the Aegean Sea, and uh, that has been a graveyard for many. You know, 5,000 people died last, uh, last year on the Mediterranean Sea uh, off the coast of Libya. And, um, you know, a lot of their bodies wash up uh, in Tunisia. Mm. And there's a guy in Tunisia called Champsadine, and he uh, looks after a lot of the bodies. But, um, you know, trying to give dignity and trying to give respect in, that, in, in death and in seeing death, for example, you know, he, he, told, us, he told us something very interesting, and, and it was that when a lot of the bodies have been in the water for a long time before they reach land, the their heads fall off mm. and uh we were like really and he says yeah a lot of the bodies that wash up are headless and it's because when you're in the sea your neck muscle after you've died your neck muscles give out and eventually the weight of your skull um becomes heavy mm. and you basically your head falls off and um and yet he still has no real money and yet he has built a refugee uh, graveyard that he digs, gives dignity to these people. And that's him just using his skills like I used mine to go rescue people, but he's giving dignity in death. And, um, you know, in Australia, if, uh, if 100 people washed up on, on St Kilda Beach or on Bondi Beach, you just, you know, you couldn't imagine the story that it was. But uh, in Tunisia... It's, you know, not even front-page news anywhere in the world. You know, maybe a trickle in that news feed. You, certainly. I mean, for you to have all these experiences where many of, many of us would, would, never, would never even come close to having those types of connections and learning these stories, and I guess that's, I mean, that's one of the things why I love doing this type of stuff with podcasts. You get to talk to people and learn and experience through other people um, different, different stories and different experiences. But... Um, you know, I mean, for you personally being, you know, making that decision to, to go, you know what, I'll, I want to go over there and help. And then going through that process of, of, you know, making all those decisions. I mean, you've, you've had all these experiences that no doubt you know, your, I guess your overall perspective on life and, and the, the value that you put in and the value that put in others is just continuously just evolving and, and growing and getting bigger um, each time you meet somebody in your travels. Yeah, but but it's like any overseas trip that you do, you know, where you're on a holiday, you know, you you, you smash a couple of those tequilas, <laughs> and then you got some Mexican friends, and then you know you got a Mexican hat riding a donkey, you know, <laughs> it's yeah, it's uh whatever, it's you know like that uh, Jim Carrey movie where he says yes, oh, yeah, you yeah. know he's a yes man, and and the and the thing is is that you you know you you can go out on the town for five bucks. If you really want to, you can go out tonight, you can go see a band and you can spend five bucks or you can spend 500, 5,000 or 50. You know, it's about the experience. And, you know, when I said yes or when I said I'm going to go rescue refugees from that image of Alan Curdy, I didn't, I didn't think I was – like I knew I was going to go to Lesbos. I didn't know I was going to go to Libya. I didn't know I was going to uh, – I didn't know I was going to go to Malta. I didn't know I was going to go to um, – Catania and Sicily. I didn't know I was going to then go to Mexico. Um, 
you know, I just it just was a that fundamental change in my my heart when I said I'm going to go help people, and um, whatever happens, whatever the flow, whatever has come of it, and the reason why I'm talking today is because you know everyone can be inspired to make a difference. Everyone can absolutely walk out their door and change someone's life. And you know how many old people that are in your neighborhood that are sitting alone and uh, have no friends or their friends have died and they're desperate to just even have a conversation? Mm. You don't because you don't talk to anyone because you're stuck on your phone. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know? Caught me out. <laughs> but, that, but, but that's that thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's It's... You know, you, you don't have to be the lifesaver to save a life. Mm. You know, you don't have to be, you know, the hero of the story. You can inspire someone else to, or champion someone else. You know, it's like the, your band, for example, you know, the people that would have to have given you that criticism, given you that, that oh, you're shit or, oh, you're great, um, along the way to manifest that sound to when you then get on stage all the money and all the time and effort to get you to that point to then play to others and let them experience and everyone will take away everything differently. Uh, and that's just, that's just life. That's just humanity. And that's just, you know, when we have all got our own little stories, you know, it, it's again, it isn't the Simon Lewis story. It's just their story told by me and I'm the narrator that has had the experience to share their story. I think, well, geez, I mean, <laughs> I've got food for thought coming off the end of this conversation because, um, I mean, there's 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 a lot of stuff that, you know, people look at lofty uh, things that people have achieved and just think that they're so disconnected from it all and they sit back and it becomes a bit of a a bit of a com- commentary sort of position in life. And, um, you know, I think just what you said there sort of brings people back to earth and you realise that there's very simple things that we can do or pay attention to that can make make a lot of difference. And it doesn't have to be in extreme circumstances or it could lead you into an extreme circumstance down the track. But to begin with, mm. it's it's very, very simple. It's a simple concept. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you something. Yeah, I, I'm uh, at MSAC. And every morning I see uh, Olympic gold medalist Mac Horton and I see him swimming every morning and I see him swimming every afternoon. And he does two sessions a day and he puts in thousands of kilometres. And then I see a guy next to him called Jack Gerard. And Jack Gerard is uh, helping Mac and they're swimming together and they're both, you know, going for the uh, um, same kind of goals. And yet, Jack, you know, he nearly, I think he missed out on the Australian team by, you know, a couple of seconds. Absolutely heartbroken and shattering kind of experience. But his resilience got him back in the water. And now he's training with an Olympic champion going to try and get the same goals. But the thing is, is that the amount of time and energy and effort to put in and to try and aim for something better, you know, even if he missed out by a couple of seconds, he still gave it a hundred percent and he still put in all those hours. And that's the thing that, you know, we're all breathing. We all got the ability to do something. And, um, you know, the purpose of life isn't a, fun- isn't a function. It's not a function to a, an organization. It's not a function to a, a relationship, a job or whatever. It's an experience. And the thing is, is that we all just talk about our experiences. We never talk about, Oh, I went to work and I, you know, did a 50 staples. 
you know, it's oh, I um, I got went to work and I got to learn something. I met in, I met someone and we went out with our friend and we got drunk and now we're best mates. Um, and the thing is that in Australia, for example, you can't be friends with someone unless you have some drunken experience. You know, <laughs> you know, your, your your best mates come from drunken experiences. Yeah, you, know, you remember that? Remember that time I pushed you down the hill in a shopping trolley while we're getting running away from the police? And uh, you know, it's you know, the crazier it is, the better the friendship. You know. <laughs> I mean, look, yeah. there's a there's a lot of things that there's a lot there's a lot of good things that people can take out of this, and I'm certainly sort of learning. You sort of just either validate or things become a little bit clearer when you get to sort of listen to another perspective. But it sort of reinforces a lot of things that you should be doing, or things that you should be thinking about, or just just very simple actions that you take on a day to day basis. And it's it's good to it's good to hear you express it in that way, and but then draw those parallels you know, with, with your own life and your own experiences and, and generalizing it in a way that, you know, people can, people can take something really powerful from, from what you're doing and, and apply it into their own lives in, in their own unique way. So it's really, well, really you know, good. I'm not a guru. I don't have all the answers and I certainly have no idea what I'm doing in the future to give some crystal clear path or, or say that, you know, you should do these steps. You know, there is no, way to to move forward in, in a circuit like a set of rules you know you have to get the degree to get the job to get the thing you know like you have to get a an op1 or you have to get a high mm. school exam and that's gonna that means your life is gonna be this way and you're gonna go to uni you know like my mother went to uni at age 50 mm. you know she got her she got her degree at, at over 50 years old mm. and uh you know, I went, I did mine in my twenties and, um, you know, same outcome, different, different ages, different set of experiences, but same outcome, Yeah. you know, and, you know, I didn't follow no path and you don't need to follow any path. You know, if you're an individual, you're listening to this podcast or, you know, you're, you're trying to work out what, what my story is or what your story is. <laughs> that's the perfect thing is that you're trying to work it out. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't need the the front cover and the conclusion. You just need to start putting down things down on the page and just start ticking off goals and just start making small things. You know, picking up one one bit of garbage every time you walk out the door. You know, something so simple, but over time it makes a difference. <laughs> absolutely, you know? absolutely, and um, yes. it. it yeah, it just it just reinforces the simplicity of like people get very overwhelmed when they hear about these these dramatic tales and stories of of what people have been able to achieve, and then they sort of put themselves in their in their own sort of context and go, well, um, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll never be anything like that. I'm not that. I'm not cut from the same sort of uh, the same you know bread or whatever it might be, and um, it's uh, it can be really hard for people, but um, that simplicity of just working out that you're unique and your own story's your own, and you know it's a day by day thing and small actions that lead to to bigger things later on down the track. And there's no rush as well. I think people sort of, especially now, I think it sometimes it gets worse with the instantaneous access to everything and gratification. You know, the gratification of of getting attention from others as well. I've certainly been sucked into that over the years and you sort of, oh, you realize, absolutely. yeah, you realize that it's, it's a lot, it's a long game and you've, and it's a, it's a lifetime and you've got to build, you've got to build day by day and be the best person that you want to. Yeah, that that's true. But you know, like I, uh, I want that short term goal of winning that million dollar lottery, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> 
but the thing is, is that when you, whatever it is that you're meant to be doing or whatever it is that you know that you want to do, when it, when that light bulb moment happens, it just happens and you will, you will be surprised at how fast and how everything comes together. You, you, when you, when you really know who you are, when you find out who you are and you know who you want to be or what you want to achieve, you'll be surprised at just how it all comes together. If you want to be singing in the opera house, then you will Google and you'll find a way and you'll sneak in and then you'll sing in the opera house or you, you know, you'll just, you'll find a way. And, and that's the thing about the refugees. And that's the thing about these people. They're finding a way to freedom. You know, they've, they've been through tyranny. They've been through getting bombed. They've been through hardship. They've been through, you know, economics and all the other kind, you know, whether it's an economic refugee or war refugee or, or any of these things, you know, those, they're just labels. It's just a human who has been through something trying to achieve a better place. And um, that's, just, that's the reality of what we're all doing. But some of us have just been born in the right place at the right time in the right set of circumstances and others haven't. For anybody that's listening and they're, they're getting a little bit uh, sort of energised from listening to your story and, and your experiences along the way, What's the best thing that if people wanted to have some kind of impact and not just a day-to-day sort of simplistic sort of approach, but, you know, what sort of resources should people be looking into? I mean, obviously, like, Mission's one of those resources, but what sort of things do you recommend people sort of inquire and look into or if there's sort of particular uh, resources to donate to or anything like that, what what would you recommend? Personally, I um, my, my it's, just, it's like Nike, just do it. Just once, you know, just, just, you will know what you want to do. Mm. You will know how you want to do it and you will know the stubbornness at which you don't want to do something. So, you know, whether it is using your skills for a certain thing or for me, you know, I did a bronze medallion that then I did an advanced resource and I did all these, these kinds of um, uh, courses and ultimately what it came down to was a decision. So you can look at your TED Talks, you can donate to, you know, UNHCR, you can donate to um, uh, Proactive Open Arms, Mission Lifeline, MSF, uh, Medicine Sans Frontiers, all these humanitarian organisations that are going out and doing these things. Or you can start your own. And um, that's the thing, you, you know, you don't need to... Uh, to follow anyone's rules, you know, you can be the rebel and you can be the market disruptor. And, you know, how Red Bull, look at Red Bull, you know, <laughs> it got a, it, you know, we'd been drinking coffee for years and then, oh, this is the alternative to coffee. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, we've all got that alternative to something. And, um, you know, you can do it in your own backyard. You can do it in your own suburb. You don't need money. You don't need to have, you know, it's, you don't know what the gap is in the market or you don't know what the gap is, is in your community because, you know, most people don't ask the questions. And, um, you know, you can look at many resources, you can Google to ever. 
you know, we've all Googled when we're sick. We've all done Google doctor and we've all got, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're all dying of all this. Or we could just go to the doctor and say, look, this is what my symptoms are and use that expert opinions. So you can use your professional resources. You know, there's lots of uh, professional places out there that help you along your way, um, whether it is, you know, Surf Life Saving for me, uh, Australia, or Life Saving Victoria, um, that can answer my questions about how do I be a lifesaver or how do I be a lifeguard. Um, but ultimately, you're going to find the solution in, in yourself and, um, and you can use, you can inspire yourself, but ultimately there is no one who will, you know, give you that magic solution because that magic solution comes from you doing it, comes from you exploring what the pros and cons are. Oh, well, I know what I'm doing for the rest of the afternoon. I'm just going to sit there and just uh, think, <laughs> think and reflect and, right. on this. But, I mean, there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great things that, uh, that you know, you've spoken about and there's a lot of stuff that you sort of, you know, and it's when you talk to other people and you, you get to hear it and it sort of just validates a lot of stuff and just, it just brings an extra element of clarity to, to what we should but, be doing or what we, what, you know, listening to ourselves and focusing on ourselves sometimes and just making, doing the right thing by us and then in turn for others. But it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like, you, you know, when you're doing your music, you know, when you're sitting there in the studio and you're, you're pumping down the, 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 the bass and the, the drums and you're putting it all together and you're making a song, then you get this body of work and you get this body of knowledge that is this, this beat, this, you know, when to sing, what my words are going to be. And you have no idea if it's going to be a hit or not. You have no idea if it's going to, the crowd's going to love it or not. And then you've got to let it go and you've got to put it out there to the universe and, and then you get the feedback. And it's, oh, that's a hit or, oh, that's pretty bad. <laughs> and then you just but, keep going with, with whatever that feedback is. You, you use it and, and you, keep, you keep going forward. And that's simply it. That's you know, it. whether it is helping people hum humanitarian crises or, or anywhere else. Um, it's very all, it's all simple. It's all simple stuff. <laughs> That's it. It really is. I, I, always, just... I always say sometimes it's common sense, but it's not always commonly practiced. And, um, but I think just because we, we overcomplicate things very often. So we, we lose the simplicity oh, of things. There's a saying, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when people, Google stuff and they become so-called experts. Mm. It's it can be very dangerous. <laughs> oh yeah, I can I can definitely I can definitely relate to that absolutely. Well, I'm going to put a bunch of links uh, on the website in the show notes for uh, this episode, and um, I'll I'll talk to you after this and and if there's anything specific that you would like people to sort of dive into and have a bit more of a look into to get a bit more of an understanding of the, uh, you know, the causes that you're behind and the work that you do, then I'll certainly highlight a lot of that. But Simon, yeah, well, look, thank you. Look, at, uh, no drama. Look, I, um, my, um, my social tags are, uh, Simon Lewis, AUS, uh, for Australia. Um, so, you know, they can add me or, you know, uh, research, um, whatever you guys want to do. It's been wonderful to talk to you and, and share um, just a glimpse at what I've, uh, I've done with myself. But uh, I look forward to getting feedback and seeing what others are going to do with their selves. And, um, you know, all of us making a difference, you know, that can be a better place. Sounds good. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Thank you, mate. Thanks.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you want to reach out to Simon or any guest that's been on the Andy Social podcast today, you can click on the show notes over at andysocial.net. I will put all the resources and links from this chat in the show notes over at andysocial.net so it's nice and easy for you all to learn more. A massive thank you to Simon, not only for being a part of the podcast, but just for the work that you do. Uh, this is literally hero work, and it's amazing to see somebody put their life on the line for others. And um, you know, at the very least, I could say without really sort of uh, knowing the right words, congratulations, well done, and thank you, thank you, thank you for just being an incredible human being and getting out there and doing incredible things for other human beings as well. We're all the same, and it's amazing that um, you're able to get out there and do so much for others. So thank you very much. Now, before we wrap it up, as always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so in a whole range of different ways. You can do a bit of social media love, you know, ta tagging, retweeting, love hearting, commenting, sharing, all that sort of stuff. Um, it all helps with the algorithms. You can buy some merchandise or shout me a beer via andysocial.net. Um, you can please give me some guest suggestions. So tweet me something, send me a DM, um, you know, or contact page or whatever it might be. Give me some suggestions of people that should be on the podcast. Um, reviews on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Stitcher, anywhere on the internet that accepts reviews for podcasts. Just do it. It means a hell of a lot. And just messages of encouragement are incredible as well. So whatever it is, I mean, the fact that you're listening now means more than enough and means so much to me. So thank you very much. Enough waffling from me. Another great episode in the bag. And until next week, folks, take care. We'll speak soon. Ta-ta. Larry. Larry, please.